All right. Well, I want to welcome to the studio Aaron How are you, Sanchez. Good to have you. So glad to have you here. Yeah, but beyond delighted. I've been looking forward to this day uh, coming here to Oklahoma City and having a chat with you. So I know. Thank you for having me. Hey, welcome to the studio. Absolutely. So good. One of the things that has been, I mean, I've, I've looked forward to having you here. And I think a big reason for that is the way that I know that you've started mm -hmm. and a piece of your story and the richness in your story, the richness in your heritage that you still bring today, mm -hmm. but then at the same time, just how successful you've been with your personal brand and still being an entrepreneur. And I, I think, you know, not everybody has the same, uh, I'd say, level of success that you've had, but there's been some really awesome things that I've heard you say along the way and us getting to know a, mm -hmm. a little bit about each other that I think will really help people kind of carry through even some of the hard times that you know yeah. that we've been facing the past couple years absolutely yeah i mean the idea of entrepreneur i think has it's it, it casts a really large net you know and i think at its core it's you know that feeling of not being complacent not, not being complacent you know and trying to see how you can touch as many people through a business lens as, as possible and then co constantly try to recreate yourself and give people a reason to write about you to come come back and see what you're doing so that's kind of one of those things that was ingrained to me very young well and you were raised by a restaurateur yes. so this is uh this isn't new for you yeah. yeah yeah so tell us a little bit about that yeah i mean i come from a restaurant family my mom talk about an entrepreneur i mean uh, she's kind of like the Mexican Tina Turner, if you will. Uh, she kind of divorced my father when we were very young and she was a social worker and she used to cater. We're from El Paso, Texas, and she would cater at night after she finished her, her day job to try to make extra money. And so food, uh, she was from born in a cattle ranch in Northern Mexico. So my, my family were, were, you know, middle, middle class, upper class Mexicans, but in a very sort of hard industry which is the cattle industry and then everyone kind of moved across the border and then my mom sort of chased her dreams of having her own restaurant in new york city mm. and we moved there in the early 80s and, and she just went after it what kind of restaurant was it it was a mexican restaurant she was bringing kind of the traditional flavors that she grew up eating but kind of you know making some alterations and some changes along the way and kind of focusing on, on, on regional dishes from you know from all over mexico and then kind of having bringing that forward to the new york audience which at that time didn't really have a good grasp of mexican food the 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 folders guide you know back in the day said that mexican food in new york city in the early 80s has a striking resemblance of what monkey has to a man you know what i mean that's how bad it was you know so so much has changed in yeah. 40 years so yeah, so my mom was super really about that whole movement early on about American regional cuisine and bringing that. What are some of the memories, like what's kind of an earliest memory of, of you experiencing your mom, you know, at starting a restaurant or, mm. or what's, what's the thing that's like the most vivid memory that you have of that experience? Well, it's a great story actually. So my mom, the way that she got to, to, to New York City initially is she went to New Orleans and took a cooking class with Paul Prudhomme, the very famous oh, Cajun wow. chef in the early 80s and he was about to open up k paul's his namesake restaurant that he had for 45 years or 40 years and he was in the in the process of doing it, so he was doing cooking classes and my mom and my grandmother my memma who was also a fantastic cook and a cookbook author went and they did this kind of pilgrimage there and then they Chef Paul and my mom stroke up this beautiful friendship. And then he said, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm divorced. I have twin boys. I'm a twin. And I cook. And he's like, well, look, if you want to move to New York, I have a friend of mine named Warner Leroy who owns the Tavern on the Green in Central Park, and I can get wow. you a job there. 
So she makes this unbelievable journey to New York City. We have all of our possessions in a catering van and $8,000 to our name. We drive from El Paso all the way up to New York. And there was this uh, epic evening that was the party was thrown at Tavern on the Green because the, the owner of it, of the restaurant was a gentleman named Warner Roy. And his parents had were like I think the director of Wizard of Oz like something crazy like that and he lived in Dakota on 72nd Street one floor down from John Lennon and Yoko and then so uh, Sean Lennon is my age and then Warner had a son named Max and sad, who sadly passed away, and Max was also my age. So I kind of there was this kind of interesting New York vibe, right? Yeah. And then Warner was this larger than life dude, just through these epic parties where there was like Russian dancing bears and crazy stuff. And he realized that there was no American regional cuisine yet. And he brought my mom to cook Mexican food, Chef Paul Prudhomme to do Louisiana food, and this little lady named Alice Walters for Chez Panisse. And it was this incredible evening where my mom was introduced to the food community in New York City and James Beard and all Gosh, these, all these movers and shakers. Yeah. So I remember that very vividly as a young kid and this, the, the importance of this meal. And that's kind of how my mom was sort of debuted, if you will, a little bit. And has that been something that's kind of carried with you, right? Like, uh, was that like a really big impression of like food means something? Absolutely. That's a really good way of putting it. I didn't understand, at, you know, till that moment, how food touches people's lives and, and, and kind of like you can make a living out of it. Yeah. I just thought you cooked at home. You know what I mean? I didn't yeah, yeah. understand, you know, sort of the career path that one can take through food. And, and uh, that was like really eye opening. Well, so, you know, uh, you got a, a home in New Orleans now. Yeah. yeah. So how did you get from New York to New Orleans? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd always go back. So I, 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 when I was 16, well, I lost my father when I was 13 and I reacted very poorly to it, obviously. You know, a teenager already is an incorrigible mm. piece of work at that age, I no matter what. Yeah, and you know, losing your, your, your father figure at that time, I, I rebelled and was just, not focused and, and we're kind of cutting up, you know? And then my mom sent me to Chef Paul Perdome as sort of a boot camp and try to get me sort of right, sort mm -hmm. of a little intervention. Mm -hmm. Straighten you up. And I went down there and then, you know, he became my father figure. He never had children of his own, so he always kind of took me in as his boy. And then I would do that through the summer. Then when I was 18, I came back and I spent, you know, like a year there. And then I started my career path in working with other chefs and, and then eventually opening up my own place in New York City in the Lower East Side, and then I had those restaurants, the other one I had in Tribeca for about 15 years. And then about eight years ago, I opened up Johnny Sanchez mm. with, my, with my friend John Besh. And then I was commuting back and forth for the first year. And then I just started seeing New York lose its luster. Wow. And you know, when an artist can't afford to live in a city, it becomes soulless. Artists are the heartbeat of a, of a city and they need to live in a place that's affordable so they can create art and i saw that happening in new york where it was just becoming like this corporate wasteland and i was just like so so turned off by it and then i just said let me go and chase the art and have a you know i think a better quality of life and that's how i got to new orleans so oh man yeah. that's amazing yeah i love it so so the artistry of this it definitely is something that shows up and and being a chef so you've got this massive impression of food can change people, food can bring people together, mm -hmm. and you've got this artistry connection. So talk to, talk to us a little bit about how sort of the, you know what, I'm gonna be a chef moment sort of happened. Yeah. Well, you know, 
all the cliches of, of the kitchen, like when Anthony Bourdain sort of narrated really beautiful about, you know, we're kind of kitchen pirates and we're kind of like these cast off segments of, 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 <laughs> of life and you can find like a refuge with other people that are kind of Mm-hmm. You know, a little off, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because you got to be crazy to work in the damn kitchen. You know what I mean? It's just, it's... It's you, the you, land of misfit toys. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, totally. And I just love that part of it. I love, you know, the idea of the camaraderie. I love the fact that we we would work hard and play hard. Mm-hmm. And and then I just figured out that, you know, I, I, I'm not good at having bosses. I don't like being told what to do. So I figured I had to really sort of get as much experience as I can and through this process form my own culinary voice and my style. Mm. Uh, and I guess when I knew I wanted to be a chef was right when I got out of my second trip to New Orleans, I said, look, this this is what I want to do. And because I have a tolerance for it. You know, when you're mm-hmm. a chef, you have to have a certain amount of tolerance for the conditions, for the lack of pay, for the, you know, working on your holiday every weekend, like sacrificing your personal life, you know, for the job. So I, you know, I was like, yeah, I can do this. And uh, yeah. And then that's kind of what was like the little ding moment, you know? Well, what was the drive? What was the thing that kind of carried you through all of the the hardship that's related to learning the craft and then, you know, being able to work under the conditions and all that kind of stuff? What's the thing that's the common sort of red thread that that kept you kept you going. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because I was part of the last generation of chefs before the celebrity chef craze that happened. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Before chefs started blowing up on television, we got we were doing it because we really loved it and we were passionate about it. And you know, and, and then the TV kind of came came right when I was getting started, and it allowed us to really sort of you know be more visible, let people yeah. get to know who we are through our food. But the common thread to answer your question is, you gotta be a little bit crazy. You have to work well with others. I think that's a really big, big part of the job. And then you have to be open for criticism and have your your craft be criticized, you know what I mean? Mm. And exposed. You know, that's why a lot of times when you go to restaurants, and I don't let, I don't allow people to do this at our places. Uh, they say, you know, is everything okay? You know? And that's such a telling phrase because it's, it's like you're no, you're almost not certain about yeah, what you're yeah. doing, and that's why I tell our staff I go, you know, you never ask that question because we know our shit's good. Yes, you know, yeah, all the time we, we put, put the it time in. Yeah. yeah, so those kind of things are really important, and I think you know those are some of just the threads I can I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, that's really good. I think entrepreneurs really do have I, I love the uh, the artist part of that yeah. and you you having a point of view on the artistry of of not only being an entrepreneur but but really the the food being the kind of focal point i will say one of the things that i found awesome about uh restaurateurs mm-hmm. is they find beauty in things that are unexpected and i think that there's a it's it's a one of the most interesting sort of self expressions mm-hmm. of their art right yep. At the same time, there's this juxtaposition of it being a business. Exactly. Right? And and it's such an interesting way that you say that because most artists are are good at another facet of art. So like a lot of my chef buddies are good musicians or they they paint or they're writers. And it's just, you can't just be happy with one facet of art because they influence each other, right? And, you know, once, you you know, chefs, have been taking advantage of as, as business owners and opportunities uh, uh, entrepreneurs for many many years i'll give you an example 
a lot of times what will happen is if you if you're, you're gonna open a restaurant and then you have a business partner who's kind of quote unquote the money guy, mm -hmm. right? They'll come in there with their initial investment and they'll hire the chef and they'll give you equity, but it's like phantom equity. It's like, okay, well, we'll give you 5% off of, off of uh, sales, but we have to recoup the $2 million that we actually put into the restaurant before you see any profit or any profit sharing. Mm -hmm. So then what ends up happening is the chef goes in there, busts his ass off, trains the staff, develops recipes, does all of that, and then somehow, some, somewhere around the way, they're crunching numbers and figuring, well, the chef's making too much money, we got 86 them, and I'll hire some other guys, some kind of lowbrow, skill level dudes to execute the menu, and then the chef's knocked out of there. Mm -hmm. And you know, and that happens a lot. So I think, you know, with, what I would say with chefs, with young chefs especially, is you gotta have a good grasp on every facet of the restaurant, mm -hmm. you know? Like, you know, what a general manager used to do back in the day, the traditional definition of a general manager would be to touch every aspect of the restaurant. So you would work in the kitchen, you would do the administrative, you'd, you would pay bills, you know, you would help with, you know, re with the construction of the place. Like that's really what that term would mean in, in the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. So chefs always kind of just focus on one part instead of getting in, in, involved with the business side of things. And, and it, that doesn't come easy to everybody, right? No. It's, you gotta put the work in. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I really like that you just said is you're like, I've heard two things that I, I, I'd like to understand a little bit better. You're like, I don't like bosses yeah. and I have to be open to criticism. Yeah. Right. So talk to us about like, what is, is what is like the story of you're like, how did you come to the conclusion of, I don't like bosses, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You know what it is? It's funny because my mom always says, there's a great word in Spanish that's called amansado. And, but amansado something is to season it to break it in, you know, like, so when there's, my mom grew up in a cattle ranch, so she had horses. And when you have like a wild horse that you can't put a damn saddle on it, it's called, we have to amansarlo, we have to break him in. And the same thing applies for like a cast iron skillet or a mortar and pestle, you have to break that in, you know, to get it to a point where it's, it's good to use. So I'm like that horse, I don't like a saddle put on me, you know? And I've just been that way since I was young, because, you know, I just, I always feel like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna outwork everybody, and I and what I do is so unique and so different from everybody else that how can someone else tell me how to how to navigate that? You know what I mean? And I just yeah. so I've always been like that, and so that's what actually drove me to work really hard because I needed to have my own environment where I can create, you know. And and uh, that was really that was really important for me early on, you know. And I take a lot of pride, you know, talking about the criticism part, I take a lot of pride, you know. I've only been fired once, and I, I promised myself when that happened, I said, I'm never gonna put myself in that position again. Because I was, you know, over my head, and, you know, I took a chef job way too young, and, you know, I made the mistake, you know. Mm -hmm. And now I see a lot of people that I work with and our teams trying to get, accelerate the process too fast. Oh, and I'm like, and I'm always telling them, you know, pump the brakes a little bit, I promise your time will come. You know, so that's powerful. Yeah. I, I think uh, there's something else is that I'd say interesting about just, you know, getting to know you in the little bits of conversation that we've had. And obviously, you know, being on TV, right? Mm -hmm. Where did all of the gusto or the confidence kind of come from? That's a good point. My mom probably would be the biggest influence. My mom always did this great job saying, You're beautiful. You're so handsome. You're so talented. And, you know, you know, like I'm a huge boxing fan. And okay. you hear, you know, and you know, have you ever seen Mike Tyson's story and how Cus Tomato was like his mentor in life? And Cus would tell Mike all the time, you're great, 
you're beautiful, you're strong, you're gonna be a champ one day. And then once you start hearing that over and over and over again, you start believing it, you know? And you feel you're invincible and you feel that, that the confidence that you portray every day is unbreakable, you know? And that's kind of how it was to my mom because she just constantly reinforced that on upon me especially because I was sort of like the pro, the prodigal kid, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, I was kind of heir to the throne, so to speak. And you know, and also a big part of it too, it, you know, has to do with my culture. You know, see, in, in in Latin culture, Mexican culture, if my father had a business, for instance, it would be very logical for me to follow in his footsteps, right? Yeah, and be like. You know the guy that's going to take on the mantle and, and and keep business going which happens all the time in latin culture but since my mom is the entrepreneur and the breadwinner mm -hmm. i as a man had to step away out of her shadow and develop my own style so i can stand alone you know what i'm saying that's powerful so that's why i didn't want to work with my mom initially and that's why i didn't tackle mexican food initially my restaurants were more Nuevo Latino or New Latin because I felt like I didn't know enough about Mexican food to really do it justice and, and, and cook that on a daily basis. And then finally, after years of experience and travel and getting to know the food intimately, I felt the confidence to, to execute it right. Yeah, well, you've talked to us a lot, uh, you know, the past few minutes about the heart, mm -hmm. right? And where that's really come from. But let's talk about the craft, yeah. right? What were your culinary influences and what was the journey to get to Mestizo, right? Yeah. That first, the first restaurant. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, it, it's interesting because I was not trained in the very traditional sense in French kitchens. You know, a lot of my chef colleagues and peers you know, made the pilgrimage to France and, and, and got, you know, had, were being screamed at by some French dude, you know, for, you know, three years and interning at these Michelin star restaurants and do all that, you know, that wasn't my trajectory. I just knew from an early age has to get do with my culture and being Mexican. We don't like to be talked to like that. Mm -hmm. You know, our culture is about respect. It's about pride. It's about heritage. So I knew that I was not going to react well if somebody was going to call me a piece of shit because I, 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 you know, I didn't cook the vegetable the right way. And then there's Gordon Ramsay. And there's yeah, Gordon Ramsay. We, we can get there. Yeah, we'll we get, get there eventually. <laughs> but he, he's a whole different thing. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah, my culinary influences were people like Mark Miller, you know, kind of the godfather of Southwestern cuisine, Douglas Rodriguez, who was sort of the father of new Latin cuisine, Jonathan Waxman, you know, California, California kind of Mediterranean love. Yeah, so I've had, I had some really kind of off-kilter mentors, obviously Paul Prudhomme, uh, that really influenced me in many different ways. And I tell people all this time, especially my kids, uh, my scholarship recipients, I say, you not, can have, just have one mentor and your parents can't be your mentor necessarily. Yeah, yeah. You know, remember the campaign with Charles Barkley? He goes, I'm not your role model. Yeah, yeah, I do You know, that. your parents are, you know what I mean? So I always feel like you should have many different mentors, especially in if, being an entrepreneur and a business owner, you, you should really have mentors that that teach you different things and, and, and sort of impart uh, a foundation in you that that, that is unique. Because then you're not just regurgitating what they taught you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, you know, thinking of, of mentorship, one of the things that I, I say about a mentor is they make time for you. Exactly. Right? They've got something special and they make time for you. But the other thing that a mentor does is they end up getting something from the relationship too. Exactly. Right? Well, so talk, talk to us a little bit about like how you view mentorship, right? People you take under your wing and maybe some of the mentors that, you know, some of the key lessons that you got from some of your mentors. That's, that's a, great, a, a great way of saying it. And, you know, I think to, to, to add on to that, I don't think, I think one way that mentors let, let 
we let we let our people down sometimes is we don't follow through. We're very much invested in the beginning and sort of the creation of this person and helping this person flourish. And then sometimes we don't do a good enough job as watching them as they as they grow down the road a little bit. And yeah. I need I, I'm constantly trying to get better at that. Just checking in with, you know, like I've, I've been giving scholarships out since 2017. You know, my first crop, you know, I, I don't even know the last time, you know, I should be calling them at least once a month and be like, yeah. hey man, what's going on? Talk to me about, you know, your career path, what have you been up to? And those kind of things. So I think a mentor has to be able to sort of continue with the flow. Um, but I, I, I knew I knew early on that uh, I needed to have one mentor help facilitate the next mentor. That's uh-huh. why I tell them, I'm like, don't jump from job to job. Whoever you're working with at, at that moment, ask them to, to write a letter or, or reach out to somebody else that you want to work with. So then everyone's in the loop and you're, yeah. you're leaving on good terms. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because the food world is so small, it's incestuous, and we all know each other, and everyone's worked for one chef or another. So you kind of have to like have a good rep that way, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And the mentors, the mentors are, are essential for me. I would not be the man I am without the influence of others. It just, it's just that important. What was something that was a critical moment where you're like, I'm stuck? Mm-hmm. And a mentor helped you in some capacity, break a mindset loose or help you even like just practically, right? Got yep. you, you know, what, what, what's, one of, what's one of those sort of hardship moments that, yeah. that you've had where either a mentor or just somebody that you respect in your life kind of yeah. helped you out and rescued, rescued you maybe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I, in, in my book, I'm very, very candid about my struggles with depression and you know, there were times there was an addiction problem, and just being able to deal well with my father passing and not kind of self-destructing, you know. And that's why being a chef is so important because I'm the kind of guy that's if I'm left alone to my devices, you know, I, I need a mission. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I need to have something to do all the time because I'm just that kind of person that has to like continue to create all the time, right? So one of the, the lessons I got, I remember the first time when I mentioned the only time I've ever been fired, I, I. I remember going to one of my mentors and saying, what should I do? Should I take a sous chef job, take a step back or get back on the saddle and take another chef job? Like, what should I do? And he gave me a great piece of advice. He says, I don't, you know, I I was hired and fired for my first three jobs. And now I'm one of the biggest chefs in the world. But what I ended up doing is I took a hard look at myself and said, am I going to let that situation dictate my happiness? You know what I'm saying? It's a circumstantial thing that whatever reasons you weren't meant to be in that environment or in that setting, you cannot let that control you. You know what I mean? And that was one of the, the biggest kind of wow moments. Like, you're right. Why the hell am I insecure about my ability? Because somebody else has an opinion of yeah. my work. You know what I mean? Man, that's so good. Yeah, yeah. You got to have that. You got to have that sort of unbreakable confidence that, yeah, I'm gonna be all right, you know? Yeah, something like that's gotta center you, you know? It's like, I think, I mean, happiness is a choice. Yeah. And if you use your circumstances as proof that you're happy, you're gonna be frustrated pretty often because circumstances aren't always awesome. Yeah, And, and you know what? I remember having this aha moment too, where I was like, I'm, my family's never gonna starve. You know why? Because I have these two things right here, my hands, and I have this up here, my knowledge. I will always provide, because everyone wants to eat great food. Everybody wants to, everyone wants to be wild with a meal. I know how to do that. So I will always be okay, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I will always have work. I will always be able to, you know, 
to be able to you know have that beautiful moment with the customer and and that dialogue through food like all of those things will always be there for me so that that was something that was special you know for me i definitely want to i want to talk to you about mental health and and stuff like that later because i do think that this is something that that is something that entrepreneurs face i i do want to get to like Mm-hmm. I don't know, like the startup, like how, mm-hmm. what what was sort of the birth of an idea of your first sort of big success? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, a lot of young people don't know how to open their own restaurant. You know what I mean? And I'm always telling people, I'm always, I think we should do like just like a short video <laughs> of just how to kind of go at about it. Because I think a lot of times, you know, if you're a sous chef, for instance, and you work with some great chefs and you feel you're ready to go out on your own and do it, how do you fundraise? How do you, you know, what's the right square footage you need? You know, uh, what does a, a, a good looking lease look like? You know what I mean? All these kind of small things. How yeah. much staff am I going to need? You know, how much operating capital do I need to have in the back? I mean, all these things that are so important to figure out. And that's why having a good partner and then also educating yourself really helps. But I guess the first real success I had, I opened a small restaurant on the Lower East Side, down, down the street from Katz's, and it was called Paladar. And I opened it for $75,000. I had 4,000 square feet. And my rent was $4,000 a month. Oh, Imagine. my goodness. And I was able to get like 80 seats in there. But with a tiny kitchen, I, I, I cooked every day. I went to the farmer's market, got food, ingredients, brought them back, did a chalkboard menu, like really grassroots. Mm-hmm. Like me and like four Mexican guys. <laughs> and just kicking butt every day. And... We got a couple of art. This is like, like right when the internet was kind of coming out, like 99. And I remember just, you know, we lived for getting write-ups, you know, like in Time Out, in New York Magazine, in the Times. And then I remember we got a really great review from Hal Rubenstein, who used to write for the New York Magazine. And we also got chosen as the best place to have a party of eight with no reservations, because we didn't take reservations. Wow. And we would be four deep at the bar. I mean, we were packed all the time and people wanted to taste my food and it was like that was my baby you know i was like the place that i kind of you know made my debut you know what i mean and we were very popular we were busy all the time i would turn the place into sort of like a little dj situation on fridays and saturdays and then from there i I parlayed that into opening up another restaurant downtown in tribeca called centrico and that one I had Paladar for 15 years and then Centrico I had for like 13. And, uh, you know, it's hard. You know, New York City's very tough, yeah. you know? And, you know, I guess Paladar and Centrico, the combination of both those restaurants really sort of established me and gave me the credibility as a chef, which you, you absolutely need. Because now we're living in the era with these self-anointed experts because, you know, they're like, they, I call them internet chefs yeah. or social media chefs, you know oh, what I mean? YouTube. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, who, who, who the hell says your chicken soup's the best? You know what I'm saying? Like, I need authority telling yeah. me that shit. Yeah, yeah, you know, for sure. You Somebody know who's I mean? tasted some. <laughs> so, you know. I promise yeah. it's good. It's yeah. just sitting here in my kitchen. Exactly. It exactly. looks good. Well, yeah, because I have a nice apron on. You know yeah, what I mean? Stuff yeah. like that. So, um, no, I just think, you know, that, because that, that was something that was sincere. You know, that restaurant for me was everything. I mean, I had, you know, my engagement party there. I had countless of events and and really special dinners there with people that I really love. And that's why sometimes people get very emotional about a restaurant and and, then letting it go. Yeah. And I always try to say, you can't really get emotional about about a space or business sometimes, you know what I mean? 
And that took me a long time to figure it out. But when we closed Paladar, I was really, I was really beat up about it for a while. I'm sure. You know what I mean? One of the things that I've been really interested to talk about uh, mm -hmm. with with uh, someone of your caliber, right, is the life cycle of a restaurant. Yeah. Because not every concept is a success. Mm -hmm. And there's different reasons that certain things kind of break down. Not everything turns into a chain, you know, yeah. or, you know what I mean? It, not everything goes goes that way. And so I think, you know, what what sort of like the life cycle of, uh, uh, and some lessons along the way of that, that restaurant? Yeah. I, well, ideally, ideally, first of all, you're the chef. You should be the you should be the majority owner. You should have fifty one percent of your business. That's just start. And if you can purchase the building, the real estate that your restaurant's in, that's the goal for every person that's listening to this. That's a chef that wants to have their own place. Own the real estate if you can, because that is essential. You know, if you don't have that resources, the resources to do that, try to get a fifteen year lease. And I'm gonna tell you why, because. Normally, let's just say you have a 5,000 square foot restaurant that has 80 seats, um, you know, and your rent's 11 grand or whatever it is, you make an investment of $2 million to build it out and then including back, uh, you know, operating capital. Once you have that, it kind of, you kind of average three to five years to kind of pay that back, you know what I mean, the initial investment. And then that, that five years is kind of a wash but then you have 10 more years of actually making money. Mm -hmm. So that's why that 15 so year that lease- anchor matters. Yeah, that 15 year lease is really essential because then you know, if you average that time of recouping the investment and then you can have all that gravy afterwards. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So what are, what, do you have like provisions that you can negotiate in a lease? Cause you were talking about yeah. a good lease. You got 15 years of a commitment. Do you have any ways to, to get out of that or any sort yeah. of like- Absolutely. Well, here's a couple different things. You know, I'm going to tell you how easy it was when I first opened. Okay. I took cash, by the way, for the first five years of Paladar, which try doing that shit now. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? And my fish guy loved me because I just hit him with three grand. You know what I mean? The, the vegetable guy I gave him two grand cash every week. So then, uh, but it was as simple as all the money that we made on Friday nights till we paid, used on payroll. And then Saturday night, we used that to pay rent like the earnings and then all the rest of it was just to pay you know upkeep and then the other purveyors and insurance and all that other stuff but it was that simple the math right wow but then you know the 15-year lease is essential and then i also have a provision in my contracts where if we if we grow if we go under a certain amount of sales per year we can get out of the lease okay so you know if, if i if my restaurant does less than three grand, three million a year, then I can get out. You can get out. So those provisions can't be made. And, and is there like a you know uh, you know breakup fee or something like that that you guys got to do? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I've no I've no chefs that go into business with the owner of the building yeah. and their partners in it. Okay, yeah. And, and that that works sometimes. Um, you know, for me, it's 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 important to kind of just look at you know the liability, who's responsible for the upkeep of the space. You know, if I'm investing in the space and I don't own it per se. And then you know you got to make those decisions you know yeah land, uh, land ownership changes too exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly and expectations change when that happens yeah but i've done stuff like this where i've said to my landlord i said look i'll i'll i'll, I'll invest in getting new banquettes i'll redo the floor I'll, I'll i'll do the i'll redo the ceiling but you just can't raise the rent on me yeah or give me six months off of rent yeah you know yeah, what yeah. i mean and there's so there's ways of doing that so do you do you put like tenant improvements in there yeah. as well where they they'll give you they'll front you some cash, right? Where you'll bring your own cash, right? And then, you know, they'll, they'll give you some tenant improvements or some TI or something yeah, like that. Some, yeah, the TI is always important. 
And then, you know, all the, the, the key money, FF&E, you know, furniture, fixtures, and equipment. I always tell that the key money is probably the better move for a young person starting out. Okay. Meaning, you know, you're gonna come in there, it's a fledgling restaurant, they have a 10 year lease, they only made it through a year, give them $200,000 in cash for everything as it is. And then you assume the lease, not the debt, but the lease. The lease yeah. And then you, you start a new LLC and you kind of just take over the operations. Yeah. In, uh, for your own. So that's what I would suggest if you were young starting out. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to assume the liability of the comp of the existing company. Exactly. You're going to start your own LLC and you're going to get their assets. So exactly. it's an asset sale. Exactly. And it's an assumed asset sale. Exactly. Okay, that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. How do you find deals like that? Well, I mean, you know, that's a good question. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, a, it's a good question. Look, I, what I'm doing now, I mean, it's just because I'm at a different stage in my life and my career. Like, I say this every year. I'm like, shit, I'm not going to open another damn restaurant. I'm not opening it. Okay, what do we do? We'll open up two. Open yeah. So now I'm chasing what you call licensing deals. Yeah. But if you, just to answer your question, how do you find those? Well, I like to, you know, when I go see a landlord or I go to a restaurant that I like a lot, and it's very successful. I ask like, who's the landlord? And ideally you wanna get in business with a person that has multiple spaces. Why is that important? Because if you have a good relationship and good results with that landlord and you're making money and you're raising his property value up, chances are they're gonna offer you one of his other spaces that he has. Yeah. So then that way you can, can grow with somebody and then they have your best interest in mind and their own. Yeah, obviously. they know you will perform. Yeah, so I guess, you know, the way you find those those deals out there is you gotta kind of just engage different landowners and maybe go with some people that you know that are, have operating, existing operating places that are doing well and find out who's, who's behind it. Yeah, and your reputation matters as well, right? Yes. You have to be able to show, hey, you know, here, here's my P&L, my balance sheet, right? And totally. I, I know how to do this. Yeah, yeah. And we've got, I've gotten really good at like understanding what deals to chase. Yeah. You know, now the deals that I really go after now are licensing deals, right? Because I have a name. Yeah. I have a big name now. Yeah. That that people say, look, I don't uh we'll we'll give you these are deals that we chase. You know, Joe Bastiano, true one of my good friends, great entrepreneur, just kinda told me this deal that he chased. You give me like a quarter of a million dollars to come in, you get my name, we get it for five years. That money is guaranteed, or five to six percent off the top of sales, whichever number is bigger. Yeah. So you're guaranteed that money, and then I come in two weeks before opening, two weeks after. Then I make quarterly visits, and then quarterly menu changes. Yeah. But I put in my people in the restaurant, and our people will be in there operating that. And if you get four of those deals, that's a million dollars to your company. That mm -hmm. you use that money to go pay a corporate chef. Go use that to have someone an operations manager. So that's how we grow. So we take those oh, licensing deals awesome. and then we, f we, we, we fuel our company. Yeah, they're that. leveraging your brand, your personal brand and all that kind of stuff. And, and they're, they're fronting a lot of the costs, right? And all you're doing is bringing the value of the brand. Yeah, and then we operate. And sometimes I, there's deals where I'll come in there and I'll just, I'll just give them you know, the creative part of it, you know, yeah. and, then, and then they run it, you know yeah. what I mean? But I, I have to trust and in, 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 you know in their ability to do that. But uh, you know the other thing we talked about TI. The one thing now that is super super important is the IP intellectual mm -hmm. property. That mm -hmm. is if you're a chef and you're listening to this and you're an entrepreneur, you got to figure out who owns the IP of what you do. Because I didn't know that. Like I, this epiphany came to me like three years ago. Someone was like, like what's up with your IP? I go what? 
like my recipes, my brand, like the design of my logos, everything that I have. Yeah. You know, because a lot of times, you know, chefs and creative people get shortchanged on the IP. Yeah, yeah. So for like recipes and the way you plate and like, what what do you do? I mean, is it, are we talking trademarks, copyrights, or, yeah. you know, or, or do you just document it in, an, in some sort of, like, how do you formalize? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, you have to formalize that. Meaning that your recipes, your logos, uh, your concept, uh, like if you have a deck, for instance, you know, mm -hmm. like when you come mm -hmm. in there and you say, this is, you know, some of the, the examples that I want to put into my restaurant as far as, you know, fixtures and materials and countertops, things like that, that you put in a deck, you can copyright that. Okay. Or you can, you can, yeah, get that through a lawyer. So that's, that's what I would suggest you do. Yeah. And then all the recipes that you're going to give forward, you should have, uh, you should also have that documented in, 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 a, in a document with whoever you're working with. Yeah. So you would say, You'd have an operating agreement or a contract, and then, to con and then also like to augment that you would have an, an IP document mm -hmm. that would also would be signed. Yeah, and that's how I do it. So it's an IP document, okay? An IP document. Yeah. And so before, like, if you're going in there with, you know, to to talk to you know investors or whatever, mm -hmm. are you signing NDAs or they're signing NDAs before yeah. you present those things? Absolutely. Especially new concepts. Absolutely. Okay. But you know, talking about this and an entrepreneur, and I'm gonna tell you the deal that I'm changing, the ultimate deal. Okay? okay. And this, I want everyone hopefully to listen to this because maybe this would be something that you can kind of work for, towards. Like you have to work towards something and have somebody that you want what they have. Yeah. In my case is Gordon. I want to be, I want to have what Gordon has. I don't want to be as famous as he is because it's like uncomfortably how famous he is. Like he can't go anywhere. Like, no. He can't, you know, and it's, I don't want that, but I the love- The amount of cameos that guy plays oh, as well, it's just ridiculous. No, not even, I mean, I mean, like we go out socially, he has to have a security guard. Yeah. Two guards with him, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like- Who wants to do that? Who wants that? But I love the way his company is structured. I love how he's legitimized him as a chef, then an entrepreneur, and then a TV person. So it's kind of like, he's done a fantastic job of having legitimacy in who he is and in his brand, mm -hmm. you know? So the end up goal is like kind of what Emerald did too, but. Emerald, I, I felt he, you know, he's one of my best friends. I think Emerald kind of pulled the trigger a little too soon. But basically, you know, Martha Stewart's company, I forgot what it's called, but then he got bought by somebody else. They said, okay, Emerald, we're going to buy your brand for $50 million, but, you know, all your pots, your books, TV pro appearances, all of that, we assume that you keep your restaurants, but we kind of own your ass a little bit. Yeah. But you know you have to mass all of that over a period of time. So eventually, that's what I would like to have happen. Mm -hmm. I want somebody to come in there, take some of my philanthropy, you know, take that, my books, product line. You know, I'm a co-producer and, and developer of Cocina, which is a digital platform producing Latin content. Like you can get all of that, okay? But you've got to pay me. Yeah, you know what I mean. And I keep the restaurants. So but that's what we're working towards. But the thing that they're buying, because this is this is the point you're making, the thing that is being purchased is the intellectual property. But the artifacts are all of the documents that you just said. Yep. Because there's the essence of it. It's like people know your name and you know the the whole like what people call brand, right? And the intellectual property there. But what they're buying are those artifacts. Yep. And that's why it's important to document. Yep. Yeah. And also, you know. You know, I deal, you know, you, that's you're going to be acquired by like a hedge fund, you know, or, or an investment capital, private equity, you know, private equity like whatever that, yeah. that is. But you also, I think this is important too, is as you, you're amassing all that, you know, those articles that you said, 
you got to document its performance. Yeah. So you got to say, I sold this many books. You know, yeah. my product line is in Lowe's, Target, you know what I mean? And Walmart. And, you know, so you, so you back it up with facts, you know, and performance. Yeah. They're buying and revenue. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. They, they want to see that. Yeah. yeah. They want to see that. So, well, talk to us about Johnny Sanchez. Cause yeah. I mean, like, that's like, that's a big one, yeah. you know? So what was, uh, what was sort of the, up until now, like what's sort of the arc of the Johnny Sanchez story? Yeah, well, you know, it started with a friendship, you know, like most things are. And, you know, John Besh, who uh, who's kind of like, you know, the golden boy of, yeah. of Louisiana cuisine and Southern cooking. Obviously, had a, he had a, a big hiccup, but um, he and I are, are avid outdoorsmen. We like to go out in, in the woods and hunt and, you know, hike and do all this stuff and then he has he has like a hunting cabin up in alabama and we were there having a good time and then we brought what we would do is bring young chefs with us and it was sort of this rite of passage for them so they'd have to cook for us and kind of like be our lackeys you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then we would kind of see how they conduct themselves do they drink too much do they clean up after themselves are they cool are they keeping their eyes ear and ears open and learning because uh, we're casing them out you okay. know what i mean and then my business partner, a chef named Miles, who's with me now, his other buddy named Drake, who's also a chef in Houston, uh, they were younger in their careers. And we brought in some, you know, we have a friend of ours who owns a, a seafood company, and we brought all these beautiful lobsters and oysters and crab meat and all this stuff. And then we went out one day and we told the kids, the younger chefs, all right, we want Iron Chef here. We want fireworks on the plate. We're going to be out for about four hours and we'll come back and we expect to see something good, right? So then we come back. We're tired, we're hungry, it's cold. And then these numb nuts literally boiled the lobster and put drawn butter on it. And, and that was it. And I'm like, and what did y'all do to here this whole afternoon? You know, just, you just drank and sat on your ass? Like, what's up? And then me and John, we kind of just took the lobster, broke it up. I made this chipotle cream sauce. We had some cheese and we made this beautiful lobster enchiladas was gilded with Louisiana crab meat and a beautiful little chai of oil. I go, that's how you do it, bro. And then me and John go, shit, we should do a restaurant, man. We should do this. Let's call it Johnny Sanchez, bro. Your first name, my last name. Yeah, man, that sounds like a good idea. I'll take another beer. <laughs> you know, it, it was like that, you know? It happened so, like, matter of fact, and, and, it, and it was born, yeah. And it was born, so, you know, and I can't tell you how many times people come into a restaurant and we're busy all the time, they're like, I know Johnny, talking about me. I'm yeah. Like, yeah, I'm like, you sure you know Johnny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. okay, buddy, later. So anyway, so it started and, you know, the idea being is that in Louisiana, people know great food. You know, you could be a movie actor, you can be a musician. People in Louisiana love their chefs, you know. Yeah. And I know that people love, people love very well seasoned food in Louisiana. They expect big flavor. Yeah, yeah. So the Mexican vernacular sort of works in that, in that way, you know. So we wanted to, to, to kind of break away from all the cliches of Mexican food and focus on beautiful Louisiana product, but through a Mexican lens. So a lot of people ask me, is it a, uh, like a fusion of Louisiana and Mexico? I go, no, 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 no. It's a Mexican restaurant that uses Louisiana ingredients as much uh -huh, as we can. Right. So that, that's sort of like a little bit of the overarching sort of identity of, of who we are. And it, it's been great. You know, we're, I've been very proud of how this restaurant has matured. Mm -hmm. um, and because you know sometimes, you know, restaurants t tend to get a little stale. Sometimes, you know, you know, people that are, are working with you kind of lose interest and focus. And you know, you really just spend a lot of time teaching there. Mm -hmm. You know, in Louisiana, like I grew up in New York and cooked there, and I've worked with, with you know a lot of Mexican guys that 
you know, are hard, hard ass workers and don't complain and don't just do what they're, what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And in Louisiana, we don't have that workforce. So I'm dealing with a lot of kids that, that have not worked in restaurants before. So we teach Gotta and teach, teach, everything. teach everything. And, you know, like, and I'll give you an example, which is very interesting as an entrepreneur and talking about workforce and how you decide and where to decide to open up your businesses. And it's very important. In Louisiana, we don't have them. There's Mexicans there, but they don't. They work in construction. And after Katrina in 2005, there was a huge influx of Mexicans moving from like Texas and northern Mexico to help with the rebuild of the city because it was damaged, it was destroyed. And then a lot of those, a lot of that workforce stayed and continued to work in, in, in construction. But how the hell am I going to compete with? A line of work that you come in at six six o'clock in the morning. You're done at two thirty. Yep. You get paid double what I would pay, and then you get to pick up your kids at school at three. You know, because Mexicans are very family oriented. So that's why. You know, and I started thinking about it. I'm like, why am I? Why, how can I can't get these kids to work with me? So you know, and I started doing some research, and that's kind of one of the reasons why. So that's an aha moment. Yeah, man. Yeah, it, and it is, and it's. A lot of teaching and you know and that sort of brings me to like the idea of like what is the future of the restaurant business right like what are the expectations of the customers are people wanting things a little more dumbed down are they wanting things a little bit more out there and more creative we're like living in the era of the foodie right yeah so i think the expectations are a lot higher now to be honest but from an execution standpoint it's so hard for us as operators i'll give you a reason why if i give a cook a recipe that has four ingredients trust me they'll find a way to fuck it up you know what I mean? They will find a way. Yeah, well. And it's like, it's like, it's simple. I give you the portion, put it in a bowl and whisk. Something, somehow it, it doesn't come out right. Yeah. So a lot of people are doing, a lot of chefs are doing, they're working with co-packers. So basically you'll have somebody execute your recipe in bulk and then they ship it to you. So salsas, side dishes, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then that way there's a consistency of the product and all they have to do is execute the actual dish. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that and that helps for consistency, it helps for labor, it helps for a lot of things. So that's a, a thing I'm seeing a big movement towards the co-packing and chefs working with other people. Wow. And so uh, what, talk to us about that. Like that, you know, co-packing as it relates to um, consistency is really big. And then it gives you some elasticity, right? Because you don't have to carry the employee expense, right? Exactly. The overhead of all of that to keep them employed, right? It's yep. like, it's kind of, you know, pay for what you use, yep. pay for what you need, even though you have commitments, yep. right? Yep. What are some of the, what are some of the things that like, as you got into co-packing and giving that a shot, what are some of the the things that you discovered or maybe some of the challenges? No, yeah, it's, it's great. Well, just trying to figure out what can be done in bulk and how, how, to, how to keep it vibrant and fresh, you know? The co-packer that we work with in, in New Orleans actually does all the side dishes for Ruth Chris. Okay. So I don't, you know that Ruth Chris is a New Orleans brand. It was started there. I did not there. know that. It was started there. Wow. Um, so like when you go and you get like the cream spinach or, you know, the damn hash, all that's co-packed. All that's made ahead yeah. of time. And, you know, hopefully I'm not disappointing people, but, you know, it happens more than you know. You know what I mean? Um, but through that process, I, I started to figure out and looking at our menu and the breakdown of it, what can be co-packed and what cannot absolutely not be co-packed. So we formed a list and we tasted the, the, the product that was made for us and then the way we make it. And we did that exercise for, for, for a couple months just to figure out if we liked it the way, way, way it is. And I would say if we put forward 40 items, I think maybe 30 of them were good. 
10, 10 were misses or mm -hmm, flops. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of like how, how we kind of go about it, you know? Especially in where we go and we expand uh, and then understanding the lack of sophistication from the cook standpoint, mm -hmm. we have to make those decisions. And that's how you develop a menu that can be executed for a customer base and a workforce that makes sense. Yeah. You know, you can't force you know, a certain kind of food in a market that's not going to work. You know what I mean? And there are so a lot true. of entrepreneurs and chefs, they fall on their sword because they're just so uncom uncompromising. Yeah. They're committed to their thing rather yeah. than listening yes. and paying attention. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I think that the, something you said earlier, uh, which I love, it's like, you know, the classic Michael Gerber e-myth, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, that a lot of, let's just say chefs could be, and, and people face this, and it isn't just chefs, entrepreneurs, period. They are often technicians yep. having entrepreneurial seizures. Yep. And one of the things that I think is really, really interesting about what you're talking about is the choice of co-packing. Mm -hmm. That is a working on the business choice. Mm -hmm. And how do you get to that moment, right? And how do you, how do you sort of, because think about it like this, and I, I know you're going to articulate this mm. better than I will, but you're in, in the business making the food yep. and you got to get the ingredients and things like that. And, and, you, and you're, you're in the business to do that, to pause and then say, you know what, I'm going to work on the business for a second. I'm going to choose co-packing and to pursue that. What is some of the advice or some of the learnings that you have to get to that choice to make that type of decision? Well, like I said before, I mean, a little bit is the idea of understanding where you are and you're in the market and and how and who your customer base is you know what i mean yeah and it's interesting because you know with mexican food it's like chinese food it's a food that people have very strong opinions about yes and they feel like they know it you know what i mean and in, in so I'm, we're always having this constant battle of like okay what is authentic mexican food to you like you know how far do you want to take it mm -hmm. you know what i mean and to make those decisions you got to really think to yourself what sells like i'll give you an example i fought tooth and nail with my partners about queso dip because queso dip's a gringo thing no, no offense <laughs> but it's a it's a, a gringo thing you don't find queso dip in mexico yeah you have a queso fundido but you don't have a queso dip and then they're like i don't we gotta have a queso dip we gotta have a queso and i'm like well, let, let's put a queso dip on yeah, do we do we really do we need and then let's do queso dip ends up being hands down the best seller we've ever had you no know what i mean way. and we co-pack it and they make our we, we want win dixie a huge chain wanted us to to to, to sell them the, the, the damn queso dip and have it available you know what i mean that's yeah. how good it is yeah. you know so that's an example where you just have to say you know what be compromising listen to your customer and and and, and just go forward you know what i mean that's a big decision that's and the, awesome. yeah and the food cost is also great on it too so um just to answer your question so we don't get off track a little bit how do you make that decision to go co-packing it has to deal with, for me personally, the quality of cook, what market I'm in, and sort of the the, the genesis of what's being co-packed. Like, you know, am I doing a soup or am I doing a puree or whatever that is? But it has to have, it has to have the essence of, of, of your flavor in it, mm -hmm. you know, for me to mm -hmm. make, to make that decision. Yeah, yeah. But you know, you the interesting thing is that you factor in co-packing like you would factor in any other cost. Right? Mm -hmm. So ideally, a dish should have a 25% food cost, right? Yeah. In, in order to be profitable as, a, as an item. Mm -hmm. You might be able to take it to 30% depending if it's you know a, a ribeye or something that's a high cost item. Mm -hmm. But ideally, you want to keep your cost there, your labor, what, 14, you know what I mean? Somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's kind of how you navigate that. You know, you want your breakdown to maybe be 60%, 40%, 50%. 
food, 40% booze sometimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I've seen it flipped. But understanding how the cost works and what your expectation is is so important, you know, as an entrepreneur and know what makes sense. I mean, that what you're just talking about is like, hey, if my, if my benchmark food cost is 25%, and then I've got another, let's just call it 15% on uh, on labor. And then you've got co-packing and they're only doing a portion of that, right? Yeah. There's some math that yeah. you're gonna need to do to really evaluate your margins, yeah. right? And your cost of goods sold, plus all of your, because you, you, what you're saving, the big thing you're saving on is if you can negotiate in bulk with the co-packer. And then at the same time, you can manage some of your, you know, the food prep, the, yeah. all of the employee and labor and things like that. I think that right there is is a challenging one to evaluate. So like the analytics mm -hmm. to be able to do that, how much of that is gut and sort of back of the envelope math and how much is that like I'm in a spreadsheet and I have somebody managing those analytics? That's a great question, a great question. Well, you know, for me, like I know off the top of my head what beef costs, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I, I know how to structure a menu where you know, I know I'm going to make money off the quesadillas because that's a 10% food cost item. Yeah. And it's going to balance out because my ribeye is, you know, a 32% cost item. So you try to, you have to structure your menu where some items are going to be just really home runs and you're going to make money on. And there's some that you're going to have to come to an understanding that you're going to break even or even lose money. Mm -hmm. But if you have the right breakup, uh, I mean, sort of set up on your menu, you will be successful. Mm -hmm. So that's really important. But the math that I always utilize is, yeah, 15% labor, 25% food cost, understanding how, many, how much staff you need to execute. Yeah. I think it's important. Mm -hmm. How many salaried employees do you have versus hourly employees? Like mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff is so important in a restaurant. It sounds like you definitely know your benchmarks. You, you understand sort of what those costs are and probably there's some moments where they, they surprise you. But I think, I think a good connection to expansion, right? Adding locations, right? Adding other concepts. Co-packing lets you do those things, yeah, right? And, 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 lets you, and lets you have different styles of restaurant. Yeah. I can now have a quick service, a QSR, like a grab and go mm -hmm. concept, which I do have. And then I have you know, then I could do a proper sit down Johnny Sanchez, or I can do a taqueria that's 500 square feet that I'm working off of no no hood, just electrical equipment. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. yeah, like there's so many different ways you can go about it and the co-packing allows you to do that. Yeah. And so th that's another way of looking at it, you know? Um, at the end of the day, you know, restaurants or businesses, a lot of times when you come to a restaurant that does well and has multiple units, you, I'm always so shocked and how simple their plan of attack is and, mm -hmm. and their operating practices. Are. Yeah, it's a hedgehog concept. It is, man. Yeah. And it's like, wow, you know, here we are like putting all this love and I'm going working with these these ladies in Oaxaca to kind of replicate this obscure mole that, you know, is only made once a year and everyone's like, shit, I just want a quesadilla out on, you know? So as a chef and as a creator, you kind of like, it's like a kick in the webbles, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but as I've gotten older and I'm, I'm more experienced in business and an entrepreneur, I have I had to choose my battles yeah. and, and really keep my eye on what's important. Yeah. You know, so I, I scratch my creative itch in my restaurants by doing special events with other chefs, okay. inviting them in, maybe doing maybe a, a, a menu for Dio de los Muertos or for a specific holiday in Mexico. And then we can have fun and be creative. But our menu is pretty straightforward with a lot of classics on it. And because that's what people want and what people expect. And it doesn't go over their head. So they don't feel, you know, you never want a customer to feel 
out of place or like they're not knowledgeable about what they're getting served. Yeah. Because a customer wants to feel like they know what time it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They don't want to yeah. come in there like, like, oh, oh, you know, like if, if kind of feel like, oh man, maybe this is a little too cerebral or what, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's always a decision you have to make as an entrepreneur and as a chef is what's going to sell and what's, what makes sense. You know, something that I think is uh, just an observation in, in our conversation, something you've been able to do is crossing this chasm of starting off as an artist, mm -hmm. as a chef, and recognizing the, the essence of what food does uh, to bring people together and what it could do to communities. And you have this artistry of it. One of the things that I think you've been able to do, and I like how you call that, you know, uh, scratching your creative itch, mm. you found a way to express yourself creatively in the entrepreneurship side of it. You were able to port some of the artistry attributes into the entrepreneurship side of it, into the concepting and things like that, but you still find a way to feed the artist side of you. And I don't know if a lot of people can, and a lot of entrepreneurs can really stitch that together. Yeah. What What's the thing? How did you say, I still am an artist, but I found the artistry and entrepreneurship, and how, how did you get there? How do you, mold, exactly. Well, I know, I, I can tell by you too, it's like, you'd probably get excited seeing a P&L sheet sometimes. Yeah, like I get, we won't, we'll, we'll talk about Excel from time to time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I get excited now about looking at a spreadsheet of, of different costs and knowing that we've improved at it. There's like that, that there's nothing better than the feeling of knowing you got your labor down or, you know, you came in under what your projections were or having that $50,000 a week, you know, at your restaurant and, and that excitement that you have, like, wow, we're going in the right direction. We're managing our costs. People care that, you know, a lot of times when restaurants are not productive or successful, it just comes down the back of not keeping an eye on things. Yeah. You gotta be vigilant with everything with cost. You know, you gotta know how many glasses of wine come out of a bottle, man. It's four. You gotta know that that bottle price, what you buy one glass of wine for is what the bottle costs. So you got three glasses of profit, right? Mm -hmm. Per wine mm -hmm. bottle. Like that kind of quick math yeah. help, will help you a lot. Yeah. You gotta know how many shots you get out of a bottle of booze. Like, you know, all those kind of little things will help you keep an eye on the costs and allow you to be profitable. Yeah, and portion control. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, to, the big thing to maintain consistent margins. Absolutely, and I know if I do 100 lunches and 200 dinners, I know exactly what I'm gonna pull in every week. Yeah. And that's the goal. So you have to have benchmarks for business that you wanna you want to make and you wanna hit. Yeah. And then you can kind of come back and say, why are we not hitting our numbers? What is preventing us from getting that? Yeah. Is it a cost situation? Is it there, you know, we, you know, one of the, the damn conventions in New Orleans was canceled and we were expecting 5,000 people to come to the city and support us. You know, there's all those kind of factors and that way it allows you how to plan properly. Yeah.